This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. This podcast has been dedicated to perspective, changing our perspectives as clinicians through understanding the perspectives of patients and survivors. Another perspective that has admittedly been neglected throughout this conversation is the perspective of families. Families also suffer from post-ICU syndrome. They are also deeply impacted and traumatized by sedation and immobility in and after the ICU. They are left isolated from their loved ones, stuck with all the huge decisions of the ICU without input of their loved one, they often lose so much of the person they brought to the hospital, and they are left in the dark solely responsible for trying to pick up the pieces of shattered brains, bodies, families, and souls when they take their loved one home. I am so grateful for the insight of a brave family member, Stephen Becker, who shares with us his experiences in this episode. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate you reaching out and being willing to share your journey. Can you um, introduce yourself to us? Sure. My name is Stefan Becker. Um, I'm a licensed mental health counselor in Boston, Mass. And I'm also spouse slash caregiver um, to my wife, who's a, a double lung transplant recipient. And um, and recently went through a, a, a pretty critical pneumonia and was in the ICU for a long time. Other than that, there's been really no, not much critical illness since her transplant, which was 24 years ago. Okay. So she had transplant 24 years ago. And then just recently she developed pneumonia, which can happen to anybody. Right. And she was intubated. Yeah, she, she was, we knew about the pneumonia. Um, we probably didn't act on it as fast enough on a medical floor first, uh, you know, her ability to breathe was less and less, you know, after trying everything BiPAP and, and it's interesting when they, when they said, we're going to transfer you to the ICU. And this was, this was her transplant doctors who I trusted. I did not know what happens in the ICU in terms of just because under it hadn't been on a ventilator since the transplant, but I think they assumed We've been through it a few times because lung transplant patients sometimes are on and off them. Mm-hmm. So they just said, you know, in the ICU, she'll get better care. And then, you know, we got down there and I think within 45 minutes of trauma for me, she was, you know, ended up intubated. And then f- 14 days. Wow. Yeah. And she was automatically sedated. Automatically. Um, was there any discussion with you as far as does she want to be sedated or here's why we have to sedate her? Here are the risks with the sedation. None. The only conversation I had with the um, anesthesiologist was about, you know, allergic reactions. Um, I think I think I was going I asked about I think I, I told them 
she doesn't do well with general anesthesia and we're always careful because of respiratory issues. So with smaller procedures, we try to avoid it. Um, and I think he, he might have said she'll be, you know, for this, patients are fully sedated and we're not concerned about that. She'll have the, she'll have the breathing tube. So we don't have to worry about respiratory suppression. As Correct. if that's the only risk of those medications. Correct. And the message to me was if we don't, if we don't do this, we, you know, to save her lungs, we need to do the breathing for her right now. Yep. That is, I mean, until, until they could figure out what was happening. We actually didn't, didn't know what was, what the pneumonia was exactly what the bacteria was, all that. Which is true. I mean, the ventilators are life-saving, especially in that situation. Um, to me that, you know, reveals this under this assumption that we have to turn off the brain to save the lungs all the time, every time, no questions asked. Did they ever refer to this as sleep? Sure. That she was sleeping. I think that, I mean, there was the initial that night, um, you know, and kind of bringing me back in um, and, you know, seeing her intubated and just the assurance that she's, the focus was on her breathing, you know, and on the ventilator settings, but that she was comfortable and that they, um, that they had something you know, I don't know, like hooked up that could kind of monitor brain waves or brain activity to suggest whether she was in pain or having agitation or something like that. Okay. And so they monitor? I'm not sure. And they said, so we can see whether she's having pain and she's not, she's not in pain. And the focus was on her, on her body. I'd say there were several nights where when I would call the ICU, like any nervous husband in the middle of the night and ask how it's, how it's going, you know, it was always, she's sleeping comfortably, you know, there's conversations about um, waking her or bringing her out of sedation, you know, down the road. I think they might've been trying, but I didn't quite understand that. They weren't really ex explaining what that process was. And were you allowed the option to stay overnight? I was not. Um, I would not have wanted to. It was so hard for me to see her on a ventilator because I knew that that was her, probably her worst fear, just as a lung transplant patient and just, you know, other transplant friends and communities knowing that when you're on a ventilator, it's hard to get off. And so that was her biggest concern in that if she did ever go on one, it would be for a second lung transplant, which she's being followed for, for a retransplant. So I knew that um, while this was necessary, I, I was very conflicted that she was on it, that I felt responsible for, even though they, they did ask her when she was conscious, you know, this is what we want to do. And there's no choice. Um, but all the decisions from then on out were in your hands. I think so. Yeah. She didn't get to I mean, participate in those discussions anymore. No. After that, after that kind of traumatic right before telling her what needed to happen, you know, she's like struggling on a BiPAP and her breathing, you know, oxygen's saturation's low. After that, it was all me. Um, feeling my way through it. Yeah. 
um, any procedures that they did, you know, while she was sedated, I would have to approve. The only thing that I kept saying was that if you guys are going to do anything like waking her up or whatever you call waking her up, I want to be there. And I'd like this Dr. So-and-so to be there. And I'd like this person to be there. You know, they need to be there when she wakes up or, or it's going to be very traumatic for her. And it's likely to fail. That was good instinct. A lot of times when we do those waking trials, it's at five in the morning with no family yeah. present. So that was really intuitive of you to know that you needed to be there. It makes sense as a family member, but it goes against a lot of our routines in the ICU, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think they did do them. I wasn't, I wasn't there. Mm. No, ultimately, I was, you know, still had to come in at the beginning of visiting hours with the exception of a few mornings where I really pushed to get in there before rounds mm -hmm. because I wanted to um, talk to the team or whoever the resident was that week. And I started to feel out how this was working. Yeah, you shouldn't have to fight like that, you know, to navigate um, that. Um, my vision for the future of critical care medicine is that we don't have visitation restrictions and that families are part of rounds. There are many teams yeah. that are doing that, that the family is part of the ICU team and present during those discussions. Right. And I, I probably could have navigated through that just with my own, um, you know, limited pulmonary experience, but just ability to kind of speak clinical language for my training. But I don't know that I, could have completely removed myself emotionally from the things they have to discuss in rounds, you know, the options, yeah. um, because I was also attached to what she was going through. I was very focused on what is she aware of and is she struggling? Um, so I had, I had set up um, music playing in there all the time and like instructed each ICU, ICU nurse if, if I felt like they were going to go along with it <laughs> like okay here's here's her um here's her phone if you could play this music or you can here's an iPad you can play this movie in the background just in case you know I think I had like her favorite like teddy bear there and I just thought of it as being deeply asleep yeah I mean that's um, what you were told how how would you know if they don't know? How would you as a family member know? The line that I kept hearing was, uh, sometimes patients remember things. So that, was, that would be the answer to any discussion about that. And so at some point I started playing like, you know, mindfulness meditations and just playing them there. Um, but I was very concerned about those wake trials. I wasn't there when it, when they happened. And uh, I know at least one or two of them didn't go well. And then decisions were made about what was going to happen with her. I saw those awakening trials. Right. That's I mean, really common. We set yeah. them up in this way that the families aren't there. There's no way for them to really reorient or come back to reality and to not be agitated. Yeah, agitated. Like, what exactly does that mean from the clinical side? Clinical side, because agitated and what was the aroused? Aroused was the other. 
And so I thought when they said aroused, you know, we, we tried to lower the sedation and you probably know the things that they lowered and they were looking for arousal. And I thought, is that, are you talking about like her nervous system? Like she's starting to react to the tube in her throat. And they said, no, we're looking for arousal of the body, like having a stress response, her heart, other areas that we can indicate whether we should, whether we could do the waking trial. <laughs> they kept assuring me it's not about consciousness, you know, because that was my focus. Um, yeah, this is where it gets so sticky if we're looking at evidence-based practice versus cultural understandings of what is happening, what should happening happen, different um, opinions about the objectives of those awakening trials. So when I say agitation, I mean what the literature says, which is um, agitate is defined by a RAS greater than two. And that's when patients start to pull at their tubes and lines. Right. Um, a RAS of four is when they start to try to hit other clinicians. They're really getting into dangerous behavior. But clinically, like at the bedside, culturally, we say agitated if they start to move and they look uncomfortable. Um, yeah. But the point of those waking trials really should be, do they stay physiologically stable when sedation is turned down? Meaning, do they oxygenate with movement? Um, right. But if their heart rate goes up, it could be because they're anxious, because they're scared, uh -huh. because they're in delirium. And so just because our vital signs change doesn't mean that they're unstable. It can be a sign that they're in trouble, that we need to work them through that delirium. But that's really misunderstood through a lot of our, our teams. So uh -huh. what happens is we see changes on the monitor and we uh -huh. turn sedation back on. Right. Like blood pressure and things that are not going the direction you want. When, right. when really we should not be using sedation to control vital signs. That's not an indication for sedation. Right. So. Well, the other piece. Things, yeah. I was just going to say the other piece that I, I think I was, was explained to me is that when she does come out of sedation, she'll still be comfortable because we'll still be um, giving her things. Um, I don't know, fentanyl or dilaudid or something for any pain or discomfort. Yeah. Uh, so that was about the, I, I mean, I stopped looking for reassurances that this was going to be comfortable because I knew when she came out of this, it was going to be, I mean, ultimately they didn't bring her out of sedation until they switched to a trach. Yep. That's very common. There's a belief that we um, can't or shouldn't take sedation off until they have a tracheostomy that somehow this tracheostomy makes this a safer, more feasible process. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, uh, definitely something to be discussed because that I would, I have a whole <laughs> thought process on that. I mean, there's not those, there's no evidence behind that, but it's interesting it, that you made the point though, about being restrained. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about that because, because that became a focus, um, of um, whether when they were going to try waking her. And I think I, I was asked, you know, multiple times, nurses and then the fellow the next day and the resident the next day. And then the, about her, what was my experience of her coming out of um, being on a ventilator in the past and did she try to rip it off? And so first we'd have to get through the, she hasn't been on one for at the time of 23 years and, they couldn't understand that. And then, they, then I'd say, so I, it was a very 
different system, different medication. Um, it was the hospital across the street, not here. Uh, I said, and from what I know from what she's told me, because I wasn't with her, um, it was traumatic. She did try to pull it off. There was a, she had a bad experience with a nurse. And that's about all I remembered. And they really took that information and put started putting in a plan that like restraining that she was going to be this do that like a high risk patient we had to really mm -hmm. prepare right. her to keep control and i did not want her to wake up restrained just psychologically mm -hmm. so i struggled with whether i should have shared that because it was a whole different experience like from what she told how me how they saw her mm -hmm. Her, Did they ever talk to you about delirium? Um, yeah, briefly, I think they would reference it as if I already knew there might be some delirium. So it would have been, it was there was never a discussion of like, your loved one's going to be in this state of delirium, and this is what you should expect. Um, it was a lot more... Why, um, why is she behaving that way? Why is her mental status like that? What's wrong with her eyes? Why can't it was, and then they would explain, well, it's, it's still delirium. So I kind of learned as I went. Um, was there any discussion about what that could mean to her life? Psychologically, uh, cognitively? No, no, I wish there had been, I mean, I don't know if that would have been the time and place for it, but it, you know, now, now that I know the impact of delirium and the sedation, I mean, I already knew that she had had memory loss from the few times that she had general anesthesia for procedures. So for this, I assume there'll be some, there's going to be some kind of memory loss or something. I had no concept of a brain injury. Delirium. No, I just thought that that's like a temporary state of coming out of a heavy drug and then it clears up. And that's likely what your clinicians understood as well. I'm sure no one was trying to withhold information um, right. or leave you unprepared or in the dark. That is what we believe it's a transient confusion and agitation. And as they get better, the, as their body gets better, their brain gets better. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is a common Oh, I just remembered something. The the paralytic. Mm -hmm. I hadn't I had not heard that term before. And that became part of every conversation. Whether the paralytic had been lifted, I don't know, or uh -huh. tried taking her off of it and then putting her back on. Um I understood that that was I was more focused on how that was going to affect her body and like muscle loss and um but not much. No, there wasn't. I mean, they're a great team, but there really was not much discussion about neurological impact. No, it was all about the lungs. Right. Everybody was focused on her breathing and the lungs. Exactly. I was concerned she wouldn't quite know. I was concerned she'd be confused when she woke up. So I like I went out of my way and the family like we plastered that ICU room with photographs of her life. Mm -hmm. And and I have to say there was some, you know, case managers and people who didn't understand her journey that she was still planning on getting another transplant that she was like fully functional before this. 
and they look at her chart and they think, oh, this is a chronic ventilator patient. Um, they must have one at home or I guess she's going to a facility after this. So there was a lot of educating I had to do out in the hallway and advocating of her, her story. And I put up all these articles that she had done and interviews she had done. I put them right on the glass doors Good. and just kept pushing to everybody that she was a unique, um, you know, transplant patient. And this is just, this was an interruption. This was not, she's not an end of life. Um, that those were some of the mornings that I went in for rounds because <clears throat> I needed to speak directly to some of the team. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I certainly have been guilty sometimes of seeing the patient as a body in the bed. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to turn into that, especially when you worked here in COVID and you saw so much of it. Yeah. So that was again, really good instinct to try to help everyone understand who she is. And to give them that vision of this is someone that lived a functional life before. And that's what we're trying right. to get them home to. Yeah. I think they didn't think that was possible. I mean, cystic fibrosis, you know, 23 years on immune compromising drugs. I mean, sure. There's a, it looks bad on paper, <laughs> but, um, I really had to um, kind of fight my way in to stay on top of what decisions were being made. The ICU nurses were, were great in that they were much more, I had direct access to them. I could call them, you know, <laughs> and they really liked me and the people we brought in. And they also all agreed to wear N95s at a time when the, the team was past that COVID um, rush, you know, or crisis. So they were not wearing those, but I needed to keep, I needed to keep my wife totally protected, you know, because there were COVID exposures in the ICU and I didn't want her to be one of them because we had avoided it for three years, you know? Absolutely. But the, I remember talking to some doctors who knew me and they like, Stefan, you have to, um, you have to trust that the team has, you know, done this and they, they know how to, handle um like the the plan for her after the ICU and they've done this before and you know if her lungs are in this kind of shape where the pulmonary rehab will be and stuff like that and I had to say to them actually no I I don't trust them I'm hearing that um she's being portrayed as a certain kind of patient and what it was, was the ICU nurses were telling me um, that they were upset. I think they all got together and they had like a kind of morning meeting and they couldn't tell me directly, but they did say, look, we, w we went to the case manager and the charge nurse and we said, that is not how we see her. Oh. She's not one of those patients. And I didn't know quite what they meant, but I'm sure you do. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, she's not one of those patients. Um, and then I started like showing them videos of her doing six minute walk tests, like the day before we went in, you know, it was a, it was a battle. And in all that, I think I missed some of the delirium preparation. Cause I was so focused on honestly, from saving her from certain directions. Yeah. There's so much going on that moment. This is probably one of your first times in the ICU. 
totally new role for you, new circumstances. It is absolute life or death in that moment. And then if the team doesn't really know the reality of all of this, how can they give you a heads up or help you understand? I mean, if they're calling it sleep, sedation sleep, Mm -hmm. they really don't know what's going on with, with the brain during that time. So did she have delirium? She had a lot of delirium. Um, and she's had a lot of memory loss. I mean, since then changes in mood, I mean, things that, things that in my field we would say are like personality related character, characterological. Um, but, but these were changes in not just what she could remember, but the way she interacted her affect and things. But and that was just, I mean, that was, I'm talking months after though. So. Right. Not when she first came out of sedation. When she first came out of sedation. It was just, she just looked, you know, like she's waking up heavily drugged or drunk, but there was another thing going on, which was that the first thing she wanted to do when she woke up was get out of bed and walk. And she conveyed to me that that's the only way she was going to survive. Like she knows you've got to start moving. So we started advocating for PT in the ICU, which was not like a thing. They didn't like, they didn't, right. They did some moving to the chair and using commode and all that. And then that's it. You get discharged and she wasn't being discharged. So we started this whole campaign of, getting physical therapy to go down there more times, I think, than they usually would. Good. And because she was there for so long, she did a lot of her PT in there, which I could see was confusing to a lot of, like, why is that patient still here? If she's walking around the unit floor playing her favorite, you know, mix and the nurses are dancing with her, why is she still here? I had, when I post pictures of people on a heap of 18, 100%, walking on the unit people say well why aren't they exhibited and i have to I, and i i specifically will put those ventilator settings so that we don't get those questions because mm. it defies what they're used to right being sick equals sedation equals immobility right but the fact that you can be sick and still walk just hurts their brains and again it's because we're not trained that way um m- mobility is not seen as medicine the way that it should be that that's interesting because you know to the pulmonary team that was the focus let's let's test her lungs let's get her lungs functioning i would say at the and what wasn't focused on at all was the mental health status i mean she had one focus whether she was having crazy thoughts or not which she's told me now she's had she had awful just like awful traumatic ideas of what was going on, including that I was coming in and hurting her. And we would come in and just focus on, that's great. You know, you're moving or you did this, you did that. And I think for her, it all became about getting out of here and doing as much movement as possible. And she didn't tell anybody about, or she tried to tell people about the things she was experiencing and no one understood. When she was trait, could she communicate? Not for three months. Um, so, I mean, she could communicate. I had whiteboards everywhere, like everywhere. And I insisted okay. they use them. And I brought in all types of other like adaptive things, like an iPad with a voice. And I didn't know that she wasn't going to be able to 
lift her fingers to control it. And this, I did This not. is your wife that you were just doing a six minute test, mm-hmm. walking test right before. And so you expect her to just wake up and be herself and move. Right. And take over her own. I mean, she's, she has a lot of medical like agency. I mean, she knows her stuff. So it's rare that I'm making decisions for her. I mean, we're a team, but she makes the choices and she knows the meds. Right. But this time she couldn't do that. So I couldn't hand, I couldn't like hand it over to her. Um, and there was this, yeah, this period of, is she, is her mental status clear enough to be making these choices? And I had to really advocate. Um, yes, she, she is getting to that point because she wanted to have some, some say in where she, what happened to her for her long-term rehab, which was going to like a really well-known, um, I mean, there's many Spaldings all over Massachusetts. So I can say Spalding rehab, <clears throat> but she wanted to have input about that. Um, and I, th- I think I don't know, it was questionable whether her, they felt her mental status was clear enough to advocate. The trait really didn't come out for the trait came out like five months later, and she I'd say at three months, you know, the ICU was about two and a half months. And then we went to, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? LTAC or? Thank you. And, um, and honestly, they neglected her there. It was just really bad. They, they thought she was not ambulatory. So they had her all set up for like no movement. And so her PT. life there. Right. On a special kind of like bed and. Like nothing was set up in the room, no chairs, nothing for moving. And it took me like three days just to convince them that when she was at the MICU, she had been doing all these things. And I had to show them videos of her moving and everything. And they, in those three or four days that she didn't move, she developed a pneumonia and then went back to the MICU. Oh my gosh. I was so upset that the second time they wanted to discharge her to the same place, um, I kind of, I got, I forced everyone together on a zoom meeting and it was a little bit tricky because the, the, the rehab facility wanted a commitment that I, for me, that if she was coming back, that I, and she knew that one of the possibilities was she would go home on a ventilator. And she wasn't going to just be able to stay there because they had had families who leave their family members there and there was going to be limited time for PT. And so <laughs> it is a little that's, that's the preface. You're going there. No intentions really to rehabilitate then just, just no, don't mm-hmm. expect us to actually get her better. I couldn't, I didn't understand because here she's now traumatized. Like she comes back to the ICU, you know, crying, and scared at night of things that happen at night. And the ICU nurses were saying like, this is something like, this was our patient two weeks ago. Like what happened? What did you get? What happened to her? She's very different now. Um, and she's very scared. And they they started treating her as if she had been like traumatized things that went on over there in her delirium, but that I was somewhat aware of. Um, 
And so the facility wanted to do um, like a telehealth session with me and I don't know, a family member. And I felt really overwhelmed and intimidated. Like this was going to be a lot of administrative people, <clears throat> not just clinical. And I was going to have to agree to things. And they also were going to ask me what changes would I like when she comes back. So I had like, I shared the link with like seven people, <laughs> two ICU nurses, like the director of pulmonary critical care, the director of the ICU, the director of the transplant division. Like when that meeting started, there were so many faces mm. that they did all the advocating. They had a list of things like, here are the things that we need for Mrs. Becker. We need, you know, this kind of PT. We need this, we need this, we need this with um, medication. And it was um, pretty powerful. Wow. Just to get her back, like all that happened. And when we got back there, I'd say, yeah, it was, it was very different. They had a different so idea in all what would happen. So when we got back, it was like a solid mattress. There was a walker in the room. There was a chair. There was already sessions for like respiratory therapy set up, physical therapy set up, speech therapy. It was awesome. all in place. Actual rehabilitation. Thank you. Yeah. But seeing all that focus, I wasn't focused on her delirium. I was focused on like saving her. like to get to the right place. Um, but you were doing the right thing. I mean, the physical part of it is such a key element of delirium. If you hadn't fought, if she hadn't fought to be moving in the MICU, mm -hmm. you certainly wouldn't be moving in rehab. But if you hadn't been advocating for that, there would be no real tools to treat her, her delirium without that key mobility. Okay. Yeah, I see that. I see that. Because it would have been prolonged and exacerbated her delirium to just be sitting in that bed with the plan to leave her as a chronic vent patient. If she ever, if she had known that's what they were thinking, like I had to, I protected her from hearing that with the exception of one um, pulmonologist who's, who got past me at 7 a.m. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, eventually she went over the team at the rehab start. They liked her and they started to hear her story. The pulmonologists were rotating and so they wanted to invest in more PT, you know, more movement, um, <clears throat> taking out the trach, um, just that whole process. I had, I was bringing our dogs there. I like advocated, mm -hmm. I made them therapy dogs and got them like registered so they could <laughs> come Amazing. in. So then I think I told you that then. Um, just two weeks ago, we were back in the ICU. She was in for sepsis, for septic shock. So here we are, like, I don't know if you want this as part of the podcast, but I'll just say that it's been, you know, it's been this year of learning about, first of all, learning what PICS is and having to, um, like, keep telling the team now in an outpatient status, you know, we're both struggling with post ICU syndrome. What services are you guys offering? And, um, they didn't, they had closed down their huge program after like post pandemic, they were, I guess, just uh, exhausted or <laughs> providers needed to get back to their other work while other hospitals in the area still had the programs running. And, I could see that um, 
she needed we both needed but she needed to be meeting with people um, neurology psychology mostly I don't you know, are a psychotherapist a, yeah what is it like for you to see like what what kind of symptoms were you seeing in her and what was it like to see that and go untreated that was very hard to see it go untreated um because i knew that even just some talk therapy just you know just being able to explore her experience like in a safe setting with somebody not just me mm-hmm. because i had a lot of baggage attached to i mean I, there's we would talk about it but a lot of trauma was coming up for me and, and so i was doing my own trauma work and emdr and things around what i went through because they they were affecting how present i could be with her and when I looked to like, well, there must be programs that could give her some kind of support. You know, their program had ended. And also, I don't think that she wanted to do it because because they didn't introduce it while she was in there. And I know that other hospitals do. There was no continuity, like with the providers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it was the idea of bringing it up later was just a little bit traumatizing for her. What? Something about the ICU? No, I don't want to talk about that ever again. Let's just move forward. Ooh. And um, two of her pulmonologists were on the PICS team. They were running it. And uh, they had, I mean, they told me, we're sorry, you know, the, the funding, the organization of it just kind of ran out. It's, there's nothing happening now. Um, she could schedule some appointments outpatient with blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, we need the, we need the glue of what you guys created that whole thing. And then I, and then I started trying to like get her into programs at other hospitals, but um, that would have made a huge difference. Like I had to learn all about post ICU syndrome online and from books and podcasts. And it started, I started to put together what was happening to her and how long after it was happening and you guys were both suffering both suffering so that so so two weeks ago she had um a kidney stone like blockage or a kidney stone that was um blocking her you know i definitely did not expect to be going to the the icu like we had discussed how hard it would be just for her to resume outpatient visits and every, every thing we did was a huge moment. Um, like a significant milestone. She was facing the first time driving up to the hospital. Yeah. The first time walking the halls, the first time. Exactly. And, um, I would say, luckily she didn't know she was going to end up in the MICU again. Yeah, she, um, I mean, her blood pressure was like 40 over 20 and there was going to have to be this, you know, emergency surgery to put in a stent. And and I, and immediately it was like, so we'll be using general sedation and, you know, there's the risk of respiratory depression. And I said, no, 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 she doesn't want that. I can tell you that she's going to want... If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices 
that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. Uh, local anesthesia, because she's done this in the past with other stones, or a um, spinal block or something, but no general, because then you might have to intubate. And one of the doctors in the ER said, well, I mean, she's going to the ICU anyway. Because like exactly. I know where that goes. This is such a complicated patient. So she has to go to the ICU um, and we have to do what's best for her. And I said, right. So also what's best for her, <laughs> I said, is not re-traumatizing her. This is a patient who's still um, just now hitting milestones with post-ICU syndrome, suffering from a lot of post-traumatic stress and in treatment for it. So we're not going to send her right back to the MICU and intubate unless it's absolutely required. And um, that created quite, (laughs) it slowed things down. And then, and then there was like word that family members refusing. And so then they started having that question, that discussion with me, are you refusing, you know, this hasn't she signed. And they asked her too. And she was, in so much pain, you know, yeah, not the time. And the surgery went well. And when we got to the MICU, um, I just, I could not believe we were there. Same floor. I mean, we, you know, after you're in there for a while, you have attachments with everybody. Like she really missed those nurses and Mm. stayed in touch with many of them. And they've followed her on social media and Mm. she wrote a blog about her experience and, so I thought, well, at least it's familiar. Right. And this has nothing to do with pulmonary. So there's no reason there'd be any kind of talk about a ventilator. Or going back into sedation. Or, right, or major sedation. And that whole night, I just kind of stayed on top of that. Um, and uh, I don't know, it was really strange, Kelly, because that night I saw her after surgery and she was herself. I didn't know they had used propofol and fentanyl. I would have asked not the propofol. So what if she, she would have said that too. So she so seemed like lightly, like, like a colonoscopy probably. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. A, a cystoscopy, I think is what uh-huh. they did. Or, so I thought, okay, we made it. And then that night the ICU calls and says, they want to have the conversation with me about intubating. Um, and they said that they had gone in and gotten her permission and that was just like, it all came back. Um, I think this time, at least I knew how to advocate not to do it. And when I went in the next day, that was the, every resident and fellow who came by was concerned. Why why is the family member resisting? 
sedation. And I have to say the same thing about picks. And I'd look at their faces when I would say post ICU syndrome. Yeah, that's a real thing. They'd say, yeah, that is a real thing. So what we're going to have to do, and like they would just move on. Um, it's almost like they can't talk about it. I really felt like I wanted to talk about post ICU syndrome and how does reintubating her, how, how can we approach it differently? And that nobody wanted to talk about. Because um, we hear these terms at conferences, we read it in journals, mm -hmm. but that's different than talking to survivors, being a family member, being a patient and survivor. Those are very different perspectives. And there's a huge gap in the clinicians and the survivors. So, mm -hmm. you know, these organizations are pushing forward this awareness, but it's still not enough to really say for clinicians to recognize the role that we play in causing that. Mm -hmm. Right. If they're causing, okay, sedation, I see. I if they're see. causing, if they're saying that sedation is sleep and that it's essential for anyone on a ventilator and that physical therapy is for the back end only for rehab, right. they're surprised that they, they really don't quite understand. That would be like if, yeah, right, you're giving me a new patient saying that they're suffering from post psychotherapy trauma and that I do the psychotherapy differently. And then, oh, I, we caused the trauma, like our field caused it, you know. And you're like, well, I don't know what else to do. I mean, it's just, I just have to therapize them that way because that's all I know. Yeah. And the, and the, it was very simple what was going on that her kidney, um, what's it called? Hypercarbia, like the, the CO2 is high. Right. The CO2 is high. And when we see those numbers, like we worry, like it was really high. Yeah. And so immediately they were like, we, we need to intubate to save her lungs. We don't want this to go to the heart or, and we're trying to get a handle on the infection. Um, luckily I knew a lot of the people and I just started dropping first names all the time to interrupt the process. Yeah. And um, I think I had like three, outside the glass door discussions about holding off on intubating and that um, this was a patient they were not going to be able to get off a ventilator easily and that this was a patient also who was being followed like for post-transplant and for another transplant and um, and her transplant pulmonologist didn't agree that this needed to happen. And I kind of learned that there's the MICU is its own entity, right? Yeah. They have a lot of power too. And they can make things happen quickly, I think, which is great. But they can also like run with something. themselves. And I did, you know, a couple of times right in the middle of a discussion, I would dial, you know, the medical director of the transplant and say, hey, you know, just this conversation is going on. Can you just join this with me? This is Dr. So what's your name, sir? And then I put them on speakerphone and they would immediately change their tune. And every time it was basically just kind of cordial, like respect what you're doing in the MICU. And why don't we hold off on intubating and try this and this, you know, or we're watching her numbers over here and we're, we're happy with this. We're not concerned about, let's just not do that yet. And I, I did that quite a few times. Sometimes they knew each other. We're like, oh, oh, hey, man. Yeah, it's me. It's, you know, it's yeah. with you. And they'd say their first name, like, yeah, it's Raj. And I'd say, oh, good. They know each other. They're going to talk like common sense and they're not going to treat me as this crazy husband trying to stop this from happening. Um, 
it definitely, I think it would have happened because that's what they're good at. That's what made sense to them. Right. That's, that's the conveyor belt. Um, and it's hard. It's hard when you have a sick patient and you, there are risks for not intervening quickly enough and things like that. There are yeah. a lot of considerations and, um, understanding that kind of history without understanding picks or delirium mm -hmm. or the real repercussions of sedation and mobility. It's really hard to make those decisions in an appropriate way when it's just, this is the bandaid for now without knowing all the complications they signed a patient mm -hmm. for. Right. How do you make those decisions? And then as a, if a family member does understand that they get labeled as a crazy person. Right. And because we didn't, because they didn't know, it was questionable like what was if there was a secondary infection so there was the urosepsis and they were treating that and blood cultures were negative and then they'd be positive again so there was question about whether an infection had you know gotten to her brain and for each one of those things like mris or doing more tests again they would make sense to put her under general and a breathing tube and so I'd have to um, weigh this post ICU experience with, does she really need this intervention and do a lot of like hurrying and rushing, trying to get people's opinions. And, um, you know, ultimately a lot of those things weren't done because they would have had to intubate her for them. And ultimately, you know, it wasn't meningitis. It wasn't encephalitis. I mean, some of the procedures were done in the, but I was like, my God, this is, this you is were just the only, You were the only one that saw those medications as dangerous. Right. And they, oh, they kept saying, the reason we want to do this is because she shouldn't be this delirious. It's been three days. We're concerned about her mental status. It's been four days. She's in delirium. And I would go in and interact with her and she'd be herself. But then her mental status was off. And they'd come in every morning and do the, you know, count, tell me every day backwards after Wednesday and you know, the mental status, quick mental status exam. You know, where are you? Who's the president? What year is it? Days of the week. And sometimes she could not do that. And she was aware that she couldn't do it. And she was upset. I couldn't understand why she was still off. Some of them were saying delirium and others were saying, yeah, but she wasn't on a lot of sedation for that procedure. So why does she have delirium? And That's they left it, it up to me. <laughs> Right. That's so then it. others were saying, oh, there's there's um, sepsis related amnesia or there could just be delirium from the sepsis. And I went with that. Yes. But yes. they were like looking for other things that would have led to. It's hard. Yeah. When you don't understand sedation. delirium. And even if when you do, there are so many things that can affect the brain during critical illness. It's not that you don't. <laughs> You're like, um, it's so obvious it was sepsis. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I just, um, you know, I get back from the delirium conference and we're talking about the inflammation and crossing the blood brain right. barrier and the, which makes sense why we see sepsis patients come out with delirium. So um, for right. me, that would be my first suspicion, but then meningitis can always happen, but delirium is much more probable and common. Um, but they're probably used to having most of their patients sedated and we can just pin it back to the sedation. I mean, I appreciate that they would recognize the sedation causes delirium. Like that's, that's a good thing. A lot of teams that maybe don't always recognize that. So I get worked up when we, Right. underrate and underdiagnosed delirium and um it obviously as you know it's life altering and that we don't respect it and we don't um 
really we're not panicked about avoiding or treating it really frustrates me because what is life like post delirium, post ice acquired weakness, post ICU? I mean, for us, it was, it was, see, this is really difficult. And this is where people don't um, appreciate what the survivor goes through. So uh, everyone's grateful that you're alive. You survived. You got out of the ICU. Oh my God, it's a miracle. You got out of rehab. Oh my God, it's a miracle. Um, you should be grateful when every day is just misery, like, cause you cannot move your limbs as like you could and your brain's not working like it was. And, for, and all the things, all the post ICU cognitive and psychological and physical changes and the loss that, that you have to accept, like, is this permanent? Is it not permanent? Am I going to get back to my pre ICU abilities or is this a new loss on top of what happened? Like that my lung functions worse or, and I, it was very frustrating, like some counsel around that and how to cope with after ICU. I think it would have, it would have saved us a lot of distress and figuring it out on our own. Did and you, you even know, know if that was I normal over- or not? Did you even know? No, I didn't. So I would talk to other transplant, lung transplant patients in the community. And everyone had a different experience, but I did start to get that they all, patients and family, they all had this experience, some kind of forgetfulness or changes in their mood or, or um, they're angry all the time or they can't process this kind of stuff or physical abilities, but there was no general term for it. Um, It was kind of like, well, individually, you're either strong enough that you didn't get messed up or it did mess you up. But again, be grateful. You didn't have a diagnosis for it. You you weren't able to say, hey, we're all in the picks club. (sighs) I wish. I I was going to start a group for caregivers who were going through it just like unofficially just so we can all talk you should i'm thinking about it i think i would do i would do a men's group um then how has this impacted your marriage i mean i think the marriage was directly impacted because we couldn't um we couldn't process the experience together I mean, we each had our individual trauma of being in there. And a lot of my, a lot of my trauma is about what she went through. Um, but like we couldn't reasonably talk about and identify loss um, when she was still working through, well, is it, is it loss or is it, I'm just going to take another week and I'm going to clear up or I'll be able to do this again, but there were huge changes and not because of the pneumonia, like her lungs got better. They, she's in chronic rejection. We knew that she's back to her same PFTs. Like her lung, her lung function improved like a couple months later. So everything has been from being on the ventilator, I have to say, 
that and we're being, struggling with. And being sedated on the ventilator. Um, right. So she couldn't go back to work because she had a lot of difficulty working the computer and doing what she used to do, which is a lot of graphic design. And I saw that she just couldn't process certain things that you like, you know, by heart. Um, yeah, it's kind of like this hidden, we saved your life or we saved your spouse, you know, don't complain. Um, now when, when she woke up, uh, uh, not woke up, but she got better and they just, <laughs> so what happened was she was in the MICU and the tran her transplant team decided her CO2 was at a reasonable level. It was trending down. They had ruled out enough stuff. Let's get her out of there. Like, let's get her to a medical floor. And I didn't understand why, but they wanted to have, I think, like full agency over her, her care and get her on a pulmonary track uh, and maybe stop the um, the use of sedation or the easy use of sedation. And so she did get to a medical floor. And as things, as, as she got more clear, she started to, she was upset that this was happening. This time she has nightmares of a couple nights there. Um, things that being like um, uncomfortable wearing a BiPAP mask and like asking to have it taken off and it being forced on her. And then, you know, notes being written up that the patient was resisting and slapping the nurse's hand away. And it's just all got, everything got excused because of her mental status, because of her delirium. In other words, there was, do you know what I mean? There were a couple like she nurses. Got no that, validation. She got no support, no acknowledgement right. of what had happened. Right. Because, because there's tough nights for everybody in the ICU. Mm -hmm. You know, look around. Like there's, you know, 10 rooms with people on ventilators and half of them might be, you know, 80 years old. Or maybe there's some COVID patients and they're young, but they're not complaining as much as you guys are. I think one doctor said I was stepping in a little bit too much and I needed to let the, as he said, there's a difference between advocating Stefan and, um, Obstruction. crossing over the line because you want the team to, you want them to listen to you and not avoid you. And I know, I know what happened. And I had emailed the, <laughs> I had emailed the attending clinician just directly. I got his email and I just sent him an email. Um, because I was, I was trying to connect, oh, that's a whole other thing. I was trying to connect her outpatient psychiatrist with the Mickey psychiatrist to specifically talk about her trauma and the effects of sedation and why she would not want more sedation. Like and, to, the, to teach the clinicians. Right. And that's they would brilliant. not, they, they, they just, um, it was really difficult to get them to reach out, to look up that history. Um, so yeah, I emailed a bunch of them and all on the same email. So they had to talk and then, and then her outpatient psychiatrist talked to them. And then the next day they said, so we talked with, you know, Dr. Stone. So that was very helpful. So we're not going to do this and neurology is not going to do this test. And we're not going to do that. We were satisfied that some of this was already there neurologically, you know, She's had MRIs in the past. Some of this is neurotoxicity from the medication. All things I was trying to say, but 
they had to hear it from another physician. Right. And um, I was like, good, we're home free. Let's just get her out. And then um, I saw on the chart, and I think it's not a great thing that in my case, it's great that I can see everything that happens now in the chart. Like you can see notes moments after they're signed. Right. And in some ways I was obsessed with those last year. In another way, I, I learned to read them and intervene where it was necessary. And this time um, I could, I had to check the notes to see whether they were changing the treatment plan and taking these things seriously. And then what I noticed was I kept noticing like hydromorphone, which I think is dilated. Mm -hmm. It was when she was getting it each day. And then I like looked at the way and she was getting it every two hours. And I thought, well, that's, I don't know. Isn't that a lot? Just, she doesn't respond well to that at home. I know it's IV, but why is she getting that? She's not in pain. Right. So I, I started asking and they said, well, she reported she was in pain in her lower back. Um, and I said, so you're concerned that it's like flank pain, like kidney pain, or do you think it's just her lumbar pain acting up because she's in a bad position or cause we could put that lumbar pillow under her and maybe it would help. And they just said either way, you know, the patient, we wanted her to be comfortable. So we just asked her and we gave her some dilated. And um, I'm not quite sure how it it happened that it was supposed to be. You can correct me because the doctor said, the doctor told me, yeah, we gave, we wrote that for PRN, not standing. Mm-hmm, not um, like routine ordered routine. Uh-huh. He said, I don't think she's been getting it every couple hours, Stefan. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not an expert on the, the notes, but I, I can see it's being administered and the time and the nurse and who's doing it. And it's been three days she's been getting it. And I would really like her mental status to be tested without so much dilated in her system. And that went out like, wildfire the next day it was stopped and they were going to transfer out of the micu and again good instinct this is why we need families in the icu this is why it's invaluable to have a perspective with someone that knows them that's looking at the holistic picture the big picture that understands their history um granted not all family members are as knowledgeable and competent as you are in this setting but they can change their the total trajectory of their of their course in the ICU in their lives by being involved I, in this discussion. I can see how really upset family members, you know, can disrupt the process of treating. Yep. Right. Um, I've had respiratory therapists tell me stories about having to stop family members from going and trying to adjust the settings. You know, because they wanted their family was remember was struggling had air hunger or stuff like that. And but this was common sense. You know, I just after what I saw what happened last year at the ICU, there was just no way I was going to um let her just be intubated or sedated more just because that's what you do to do this procedure or that procedure or make her comfortable. Um and I really was like a broken record about the PTSD around the last experience in the ICU. Cause I had to say it in a way that it's not that 
you guys did anything wrong. Like it was a great experience for us, but she has this PTSD around it. Um, even that night um, that I talked to the doctor about, I talked to her pulmonologist about when I saw the hydromorphone or the dilated, and I asked him, and he, and then he said, "So, I said, so what do you, what do we do?" And he said, "Well, Stefan, I mean, I mean, I can call, and I'm going to text." so-and-so because I know him who's the attending clinician, but I can't really, I mean, I'd have to go to rounds tomorrow and be a part of the treatment plan and discuss and ask if this is necessary. And I said, well, I, what can I do? And he said, well, you, as a family member, you can just ask the ICU nurse um, to not give it to her. And um, just one second. And so I, um, I said, well, I'm not, I don't want a confrontation, you know, about this. I said, well, let me, I'll just act like I, I just came up across it. And so then, so then that's what I did. I, I didn't confront the nurse. I called her and I like, Hey, it's Stefan, you know, the worried husband, blah, blah, blah. And, and I just said, I was wondering if tonight she could maybe just not get dilated. Um, let's just see if that helps her clear up tomorrow. Um, and they had said, well, she's not getting that. She hasn't been getting it for a couple of days. And I said, yeah, I, th I think she has, I could be having it totally wrong. Um, but I think she's been getting it every two hours. We can, I'll, I'll ask tomorrow morning. And then that was it. And then the next morning I went in and I don't know if something was overlooked or what, but it was but off and she was, her mental status improved. It was off and the nurse didn't really want to talk about how much she had been getting and um oh. yeah it stopped and she status improved can you hold on one second kelly yeah totally so that was my wife and that's like she couldn't find the tv remote and like losing the tv remote is new this is like post ICU. She's not, she doesn't have dementia or, yeah. and, um, the other thing I'd say that's new is this nervousness that she gets scared easily. Um, so there's like, not like not hypervigilance, but I don't know, a little more timid, less brave than she was before the ICU experience. And I think this last time, and obviously she got home and like the sepsis is better yeah. <laughs> and they found the right antibiotic and we're doing IV antibiotics at home. But this time it really scared her. And, and I, I know that I'm, the way I'm talking about this is like, I'm the, I'm the guy, I'm the hero, I'm the one who saved her. And, and the, and it doesn't, you know, and the providers keep saying that to her, like you did great, but you know, it's this guy, it's your husband, you know, he made those calls and he stopped you from getting innovated. And there's been a lot of that. Um, and, um, I'm still, I'm just sad to see her kind of re-traumatized by being in there. Um, and whatever medication she was given, no one explained them to her and she's still trying to put it together. Um, and 
yeah, she didn't go on a ventilator, but she, a lot of other things were put in her body that now she's just mentally off. And yes, the post-sepsis, right, recovery. Mm-hmm. But she still had delirium. And so she had still delirium. an assault to the brain. There were still alternative experiences. It's very justified that she'd be so impacted by it. So they were all like, you got to follow up with neurology and get a scan. But that was about, you know, the possibility of microstrokes mm-hmm. and hemorrhaging. It, nothing was about follow up and see how you're doing cognitively. How you're process, you know, processing short term memory. Like, why isn't any of that recommended? If they because know we're not aware of it. Are you not aware of it because the patient, like the patient leaves and there's just not much contact anymore with the case. When I tell clinicians that one episode of delirium increases the risks of long-term cognitive impairments by 120 times, they're astounded. I didn't know that until I started this whole journey and started combing through the, the research. And I happened to stumble across it, you know, this is not something that's standardized in our education. It's not right. known throughout our teams. It's not talked to the bedside. So of course we can't prepare you with knowledge that we don't have ourselves. Or, or some are even afraid to, I mean, that's, that's the tool you use. I mean, that's the tool you use. So how do you, Oh, right. If we, if we right. It's really hard to be so brazen about this when we feel like sedation is unavoidable for every patient on a ventilator. Right. So when we understand that most patients can't be awake and mobile on the ventilator, then we're going to really be frank about the risks associated with the medications and why we're going to avoid them. But if we can't avoid them, it's just par for the course. Um, but then if it is unavoidable, we can really respect it. I think what happens is when people have see a contrast in outcomes, when they see patients be calm, compliant, and strong on the ventilator, that's when they really see what all this research means and they see the impact of sedation. They can compare those experiences to what they're used to. And they can say, wow, it's not just the critical illness. It's not just the ventilator. It's these medications. That's when they really not just can recite statistics, but they can, they're converted to it. They understand right. they're sobered. They're scared of these medications. Now they don't want patients to have the normal routine. Right. And then when it's unavoidable, we can say, I'm so sorry. It could cause this. This is what could happen later on. Or at least as you leave and say, you know what, this is what's happened. Here's what you need to recover from this. Uh, definitely the second part. Cause I would think that, during COVID, you had a lot of people coming in who were healthy, who didn't have complications like my wife or other conditions, and then come out after the ICU having these other post-ICU problems, you know, and, and it was like a scientist, you know, or yeah. marathon runner. And how yeah. do you explain? Well, they're calling it long COVID and, and certainly. Okay. Yeah. ICU admission aside. Any COVID patient can have cognitive impairments. We know that COVID can be neurotoxic, right? but we took a neurotoxic disease process and we gave neurotoxic medications and a neurotoxic environment on top of it. So the question is, how much of this is just long COVID? How much of this is the classic picks Uh from sedation, delirium, immobility? It's really hard to know, but we know that the same trends followed that patients that had improved care in terms of protecting patients from this Mm -hmm. had improved short and long-term outcomes, 
even with the same disease process. But that's very misunderstood within the ICU community. And so you did play a huge role in your wife's survival, avoiding more sedation. But what do you wish that we, I mean, I'm sure this can be a whole discussion, but mm-hmm. in summary, what is your plea to the ICU community? How can we help our interactions with um, families be better and our approach to caring for patients? Psychoeducation about the impact of delirium, of the sedation, um, like separate, not just added on to discussions about whatever the critical disease is, right? But just a part of like another consult or something that happens. Um, So a provider comes in the room and, oh yeah, I'm here from, instead of like, you know, whatever, endocrinology or pulmonology, I'm here from psychiatry here just to talk about and prepare you for delirium. I mean, I don't know how they would do it, but they should, there's gotta be a way they could do it and it not be about like, um, blaming the hospital for doing something that's, they shouldn't be doing or didn't, um, need to, um, I think talk about it would have been very scary in the middle of the crisis, Mm -hmm. but after, I mean, I'm a, you know, we're smart couple like in the medical field right Mm -hmm. because we've been in it for so long and we didn't know and uh it was humbling what that did and i i I remember the the only concern was that if she's um sedated so long and on the ventilator before they traked her that the concern was like protecting the larynx and breathing there was no talk about we don't want to keep someone sedated for so long. Well, the paralytics was, you know, her, her body, her muscle function, but nothing about the brain. Um, it's an afterthought. And there was something I wanted to tell you, which was in the middle of it, I felt so lost that I went, I found that book by Eli. Mm -hmm. Um, Every deep drawn breath. Yep. So I started reading that to try to get an idea of what's going on in there. Um, and why is Andrea, uh, why is, you know, my wife still sedated and what's the, and I start, I read all about his, what he was saying about ICU and patients. Um, and I went in and I told, <laughs> I told the director of the ICU or of pulmonary, pulmonary critical care. I said something like, oh yeah, I'm reading this book um, by Eli. And he's like, oh yeah, that's a great book. You're reading that? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm understanding more about what, how this all works, what goes on in here. And he said, you know, he's done a lot to change how we do things. And we're trying to um, adopt some of that here. And that was all he, all he said, you know. But then every day in the hallway after that, he'd call me by my first name and say hi. and Because hmm. I was reading a book on his level, you know. You could, but then you had common vocabulary. I had common vocabulary. What I was hoping in the book was there was going to be a little bit more like how to cope with what happens after the IC. But I know a lot of his focus was how do we, how do we approach patients and what we're doing? Well, I would recommend well, Dr. Jim Jackson's book. 
Jim Jackson. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, his is more about um, how to rec- how to recover cognitively. I think psychologically as well. From it was kind of for COVID, but it's very applicable to any ICU patient. Okay. And I did an episode with him. Um, in episode one twenty nine about his book. And so I, I, and that's, that is a, I'll check that out. yeah, that's a, that just came out a, a, a two months ago. It's called clearing the fog. Oh, great title. And I'm hoping that that could be something that we give and we make sure that families have as they leave the ICU to say, here's something to help guide your long road ahead. But I am hoping that in the future that we have much more standardized safety nets for our survivors that we have understanding in the ICU to prevent the harm. But then also it's going to happen, you know, there's, we'll never totally eradicate delirium. So we, that we have the tools, the understanding, the resources to say, here's what you experience. Here's what it may, what may happen afterwards. We're going to set you up. Anyone that has ARDS, you have a pulmonology follow-up later. You have Uh a kidney injury, you get nephrology follow-up later. Uh When it comes to delirium, good luck, have a good life. That's just, that's not right. It doesn't make sense. And I think the fact that I keep bringing it up, I, I don't know. They think I'm doing it because I work in the mental health field. Oh, and like, I'm so focused on that. You know what I mean? No. It, yes. I mean, even, I, even I my wife's starting to feel that even she's feeling that way too. Like, you know, let's focus on the other stuff. Like let's not keep bringing, you know, you don't have to keep pointing out the cognitive challenges. Uh. But the, it can go the other way too, where families are so unaware of the importance or the p- impact of cognitive impairments, the psychological trauma that they want to say, you're here, stop talking about it. You survived. Nothing else matters. So sometimes survivors have no support or validation in those aspects of their recovery. Well, I think there's a lot of people who still think, as I did, that delirium is like a serious hangover and it wears off. Uh, no, 95% of the medical community thinks that. So you are absolutely not alone. Your concerns are valid. Um, in and after the ICU, your concerns are valid. And I hope that this interview helps give the clinician side of the ICU a little more perspective on the family side of all of this, that advocating is key and vital and that family members bring important elements to the um, plan of care <laughs> and to the bedside. I think that would be another thing that's helpful is if the, if the providers asked, what does the family need? But more than like, what do you need? Like, you know, apple juice or soda, or do you need a room to sit down in? Yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I, I, I advocated, but I, I had to infiltrate, right. To be heard and to learn what was happening or could happen with more sedation. Um, it shouldn't be such a challenge. Like I said, I found a couple or one provider who was very friendly and started, he was just was very transparent and told me what was going on and even didn't mind that I hung around at rounds kind of listening in. Um, but I had to, I'd use all the techniques I have to get in there. And most family members, I think, cannot do that. No. It would not be, just wouldn't have that kind of access. They're in large, very shut out of the process and the discussions. 
they're allowed some scraps of information. Um, mm -hmm. That is not the ABCDF bundle. That's not evidence-based medicine. That's not families being engaged um, and immersed into the process. And I hope that that changes. And I um, would invite you to continue your advocacy, get involved, start a, a family support group, especially for men. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's no safe place for people to talk and just be honest. Um, your profession, your skills can bring in a lot of guidance and support for people that you can understand need it. And I'm going to continue to utilize you to help bring changes yeah. into the ICU side. Um, I'm optimistic for the future. I think we can and must learn from your journey and that of so many patients and survivors and families. So thank you so much, Stefan. Yeah, I'm optimistic that you are doing this. <laughs> you know, the podcast and that you're on this path. I, I agree. And um, you're welcome. Thanks for um, giving me like a space to talk about it. Well, I think that more spaces will be created and we're going to reach the people that need it. Thank you. You're welcome. a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com.